Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, it is fantastic to see you guys this morning. So glad you're here. Uh, today is a pretty big day in the life of our church for a few reasons. Uh, one, because it is our first Sunday of hosting two gatherings on Sunday mornings. Yeah, a couple of people are excited about that, excited about that extra hour of sleep you got. Uh, most everybody showed up on time, both for this and the nine, or at least the City Church version of on time, which is 10 minutes late. Um, so it's going great so far. I didn't see many people straggle in at 10 a.m. Um, so we're doing great. We're on a roll. We'll see how this goes. Um, we, uh, as far as the sermon goes, though, I should probably warn you, uh, a 9 a.m. gathering means that my coffee has not kicked in yet, and an 11 a.m. gathering means that it's already worn off. So just subpar sermons from here on out at City Church. My apologies on that, but those are the only options. Uh, we are really, really excited to open up two gathering times, even though it is a little bit of extra work for our staff and volunteers. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we could open up seats uh, for new people that have been coming around our church and will continue to come around our church um, in the future. Last year, we made the mistake of waiting too far into the fall to do two gatherings, uh, and it was people were already looking around and just feeling like there weren't seats available for them. And so this year, we just said, you know what, let's kick off the fall open up plenty of seats for people to show up. So I, I know it's a little bit weird because we're not really used to having a ton of empty seats in here, especially this time of year uh, as a church, but man, insofar as it allows us to create space for more people to come in and experience who Jesus is in the context of our church family and our gatherings, we're really, really excited to do it. So hopefully you'll join with us in um, that whole process. The second reason that today is a big day in the life of our church, uh, and this is part of the reason that we started two gatherings this Sunday is that this tends to be the week uh, that all of our college students join us or rejoin us for the semester. Uh, we're super pumped that you guys are here. Um, we've, since the beginning of our church, really, we've been blessed to have anywhere from 30 to 40% of our church be made up of college students from UT and from Johnson and from various other schools in the area. Uh, and so we are excited to have you guys back. Uh, as we always say, our church is not the same over the summer without you guys here. Uh, Knoxville is not the same without you guys here. Uh, it's all worse, except for traffic. Traffic is way better without you here. Uh, I've been actively avoiding campus and every target in Knoxville over the past week. Um, and I think I've done well with that. But, uh, so that's worse. But everything else, uh, or that, the traffic is better. But everything else is worse. So glad y'all are here. Pumped for the semester and everything that holds for you. We are praying for you guys as you navigate being missionaries on your campus uh, throughout the year. And so welcome or welcome back if that applies to you. The third reason that today is a big day is because we are wrapping up a summer teaching series this morning that we've been in for the past month or so called City on a Hill. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the New Testament book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. So a while back, the director of the FBI here in the U.S. received a very concerned letter. 
It was from a former member of the Army, Army Intelligence Service, and the letter stated confidently that a certain U.S. citizen at the time was a definite danger to the security of the United States. That was the language of the letter. And that letter really was the culmination of a collective panic over this particular public individual that was taking place across the country at that particular time. Americans everywhere were concerned that this one person was single-handedly corrupting the minds of an entire generation and that it was a security risk such that the very soul and safety of America was at stake. The year was 1956 and the person responsible for all of this panic was none other than the singer Elvis Presley. It was believed that Elvis's singing, and particularly his dancing, and even more particularly his hips while he was dancing, were a real problem for the security of our country. And quite a few people were very concerned about it, such that a member of the Army Intelligence Service chose to write a letter to the director of the FBI about it. Sometimes when I'm bored, I like to imagine what that same army intelligence officer would have thought if he could time travel and watch a Cardi B music video from today. <laughs> like, I think he would just spontaneously combust, you know? Like, I just don't think he'd make it through it. So that was a source of panic in the 50s. In the 60s and 70s, another public panic ensued, this time over the yearly practice of trick-or-treating at Halloween. Fears were stoked among parents about strangers who might hide razor blades in apples or lace children's candy with cyanide. Parents everywhere carefully examined their children's stashes of candy on Halloween. Schools and churches opened their doors so that kids could trick-or-treat in safer environments. Hospitals actually volunteered to put kids' candy bags through their x-ray machines to check for suspicious materials in them. In 1985, an ABC News poll showed that 60% of parents in America were concerned that their children might be victimized by the candy that they received on Halloween. Shortly after all of this outrage, researchers made a fascinating discovery. The fear of poisoned Halloween candy was all based on a myth. Not a single child was poisoned via their candy by a stranger on Halloween. In the year 1999, people all over the world began panic buying everything in sight in preparation for Y2K. Anybody remember this? I'm probably aging myself a little bit by saying that I remember it, but I remember it distinctively. Uh, Y2K was a big deal in the mind of many people. The concern shared by a few and then exacerbated by millions was that many computer programs would fail once the final two digits of code switched over to 00 for the year 2000. These computer programs would then assume that it was the year 1900 instead of 2000, and all types of chaos would ensue as a result. Many people believe that this would trigger a widespread failure of everything from airplanes to financial systems to critical infrastructure in our country. Uh, growing up a church kid, uh, I specifically remember multiple adults in my church telling me that Y2K, without a doubt, would usher in the rapture and return of Jesus. 
I knew churches that were actually planning for it to happen, like actively. My church didn't go quite that far, but we had a lock-in on New Year's Eve, you know, just in case, you know? <laughs> I, I don't know if like the thought was that we needed to be all together because Jesus would have a hard time finding us if we were separated, or I don't know what the thinking behind it was, but I remember we had a lock-in on New Year's Eve, 1999. People seemingly everywhere were panicking about what could happen when the clock struck midnight. My point is that panic seems to be a semi-regular state of existence for the world that we live in. Would you agree? And I could go on with more examples down throughout history of that, all the way down to present day. So nowadays, just about every four years in our country, whoever wins the presidential election uh, about half of the population is convinced that that person's presidency will usher in the end of civilization as we know it. Every summer Supreme Court session for the past several years, there is at least a court case or two that prompts widespread panic from one political interest group or the other. And don't get me wrong, my point is not to say that there aren't ever concerning things happening in those sectors of society. There certainly are. My point is simply to say that on the whole, we live in a society that is quite easily given towards panic. And if you don't believe me, just locally here in Knoxville, the first time this winter that the meteorologists say that there is even a chance of snow in our city, I would encourage you to go park your car at the local Kroger and watch panic ensue. <laughs> watch every school in Knox County cancel classes only to have a few lonely snowflakes hit the ground and immediately melt. We just tend to panic as a default response. We as a species are given towards panic. Now, there are probably a number of different reasons for that. Uh, one is that fear is a very natural human emotion. Another is that the world can indeed be a quite scary place. There are concerning things happening in our world at all times. And today, because of our access to the internet, we are now more aware of more things happening in more places than any generation to exist before us. We are aware right now, within minutes, of every alarming thing happening in every corner of the globe. That access is going to lend itself towards some anxiety and fear and panic. Add to that that we are also confronted with more false and misleading information than ever before. Add to that that the politicians on both sides of the aisle have now mastered the art of manipulating people's fear in order to win votes for themselves. All of that, and I'm sure plenty more factors as well, create the perfect recipe for a society that tends to panic early and often as a response. Stanley Cohen, the late sociologist, describes this phenomenon of cultural panic like this. He says, societies appear to be subject every now and again to periods of moral panic. Sometimes the panic passes over and is forgotten, except in folklore and collective memory, i.e. Y2K, at other times, it has more serious and long-lasting repercussions and might produce such changes as those in legal or social policy or even in the way society conceives itself. That's a sociologist's very wordy way of saying, we sure do love to panic sometimes. Sometimes appropriately, sometimes somewhat inexplicably. Now, 
Here's where all of that intersects with our time here this morning. If you're new with us here on Sundays, as I said earlier, we are wrapping up a teaching series called City on a Hill, Becoming a Church the World Needs. Each week, we have been discussing various ways that we as followers of Jesus are called to be different from the world for the sake of the world. That's what city on a hill alludes to in the scriptures, that metaphor. We've talked about so far how we are called to be a community of orthodoxy in an age of ideology, a community of presence in an age of distraction, a community of intercession in an age of gossip and a community of self-responsibility in an age of blame shifting. That's where we've been so far. Today, to wrap things up in this series, I want us to talk about becoming a community of peace in an age of panic. What does it look like for us as followers of Jesus to embody peace while everyone around us is prone to panic? For much of human history, followers of Jesus have possessed this strange ability to embody peace while the society around them does not largely embody it. Now, I realize that you may not gather that from American Christians in the past decade or so, but historically, it has been the case. Followers of Jesus have embodied this type of posture. From the first to the fourth centuries, if you go back and study world history, nearly every time that plagues or pestilence would strike entire cities in the ancient world, most people in those cities would flee from the cities or they would hide inside their homes and never leave. But followers of Jesus during those eras would often stay in the city and actively go out to care for the sick suffering from these plagues. Their willingness to do so, just historically, is said to have greatly reduced the death toll from these plagues across the ancient world. If you've never read stories of the underground church movements in present day in places like China or Iran, I would highly recommend that you go read stories of it. I think you will find it crazy encouraging. So you'll hear story after story after story of followers of Jesus in situations in China and Iran and other places where panic would by all measures be the most natural response for them to take. And instead, those followers of Jesus are embodying incredible, surreal amounts of peace in the midst of that panic. So whether you are familiar with it or not, this posture of peace, embodying peace, to the world around them has been a pattern for God's people throughout human history. Peace in the age of panic. And in light of that, the question that I want us to ask this morning and figure out an answer to is how Christians are able to do that. How are Christians able to do that? What enables followers of Jesus to respond in that sort of way, where panic would be a logical response What enables followers of Jesus to instead embody peace? I think if we can figure out some answers to those questions, I think we too can learn to become a community like that. So let's see if we can find some answers from the scriptures. So look with me at Philippians chapter four, which in theory is already open somewhere near you. Philippians chapter four, we're gonna start reading in verse four. Here's what it says. Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, 
But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. So Paul, the author of the book of Philippians, tells followers of Jesus in that ancient city, quote, not to be anxious about anything. Now, that word anxious, we've covered this before in this very series, that word anxious means to be divided into parts, to be pulled in many different directions, mentally or psychologically or emotionally, to be hyper-concerned with many different things in a deeply troubled sort of way. We could say that it is to be panicked or to be in a panic to have your mind obsessing over a whole lot of different things, the vast majority of which are outside of your control. Paul says to the Philippians in this book, do not be that way about anything. Now, before we write off what Paul is saying here is somehow naive or unrealistic, before we assume that he's just throwing empty platitudes at people's problems, Let's think for a second about the context of this letter that we call the book of Philippians. So best we can piece together from history, Paul is writing these very words in Philippians chapter four from either prison or house arrest, where he has just been detained for following Jesus and preaching about the way of Jesus. Earlier in the letter of Philippians, he seems to indicate that he actually doesn't know whether he will die while he's imprisoned or whether he'll make it out alive. That's how bad it is. Additionally, he writes these very words to a group of Christians living in the city of Philippi, which was a significant Roman stronghold at the time. The Roman emperor at the time was an emperor named Nero who became particularly known for despising the Christian movement. The same Nero, who we know from history, would eventually light Christians on fire and use them as living torches along the city streets. Now here's why I tell you all of that backdrop. Because I think sometimes we are inclined to think that the cultural circumstances we're in right now are the worst that things have ever been in the history of the world. We tend to think that, therefore, that encouragements from Paul, like do not be anxious about anything, are somewhat unrealistic to us since Paul had no idea how, th how bad things could truly get in 21st century America. But at least currently, I don't know that any of us as Christians are in danger of being imprisoned for being Christians. Not saying that won't ever happen. I'm saying right now, that's not the situation we're in. I don't know that any of us are in danger of being used as human torches by an evil emperor where we live. So I think we would do well to at least hear Paul out. Because granted, some things are not great in our world right now. But at the same time, they were pretty bad back then too. 
So I think we should at least hear Paul out since he also apparently knows what it feels like to live in a situation where panic would be an easy response to take. So we might want to ask instead, knowing all of that, how could Paul in that type of situation himself, writing to Christians under threat of that type of situation, say to them something like, do not be anxious about anything. How could that feel like a reasonable, feasible response for him to have to them and a feasible instruction to give them? Well, for starters, Paul does not only say, don't be anxious. It's not just a negative command. He actually gives positive things to do instead. First, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Does anybody who grew up in a Baptist youth group have the song in their head right now? few hands. Rejoice in the Lord. If you didn't have that song in your head, now you do. You're welcome. Worship songs in the 90s were something else. I mean, they were really something else. Um, So in in light of that, and in light of, I, I think this command almost reads a bit flat to us if we grew up in and around church and heard it in songs like that. Let's talk about the word rejoice for a second. The word that Paul uses in Greek is the word Cairo. And the word on the surface means exactly what it sounds like it means. It means to be glad. But the origins of that word go a little bit deeper than that. So it shares a root with the Greek word for grace, as in God's grace. So when Paul tells the Philippians to, quote, rejoice, he's not saying, hey, I know you're really anxious right now, but instead I want you to spontaneously decide to be happy instead. That's not what Paul's saying. Rather, he's saying something more like this, I think. He's saying, I know right now there are plenty of reasons for you to be anxious. I want to remind you, though, that there are also plenty of reasons to rejoice. Paul does not say rejoice, period. He says rejoice in the Lord, in Jesus, and specifically in the grace given to them in and through Jesus. Choose to set your mind, Paul says, not just on the reasons for anxiety, but also on the reasons for joy. Then Paul moves on to giving what I see as at least four specific ways to do just that, to to rejoice in those moments. Four practical methods for pursuing peace in the midst of a panicked world where panic would be the most instinctive response. So I want us to spend some time for the remainder of the morning on these four practical things. First, in the passage, he tells us to, quote, pray thankfully. Pray thankfully is the first instruction. Look with me at verse six of our passage. Paul says this, do not be anxious about anything But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So in Paul's mind, the first alternative to being anxious about anything is actually praying about everything. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter actually uses the language of casting all our anxieties or casting all of our cares on God in prayer. So a friend of mine who has always struggled a lot with anxiety in his life, He tells me that every night before he goes to bed, right before he closes his eyes, he lists out the top three things that he is anxious about in that moment. And then he says to God in prayer, God, I need you to worry about these things because your worry is more effective than my worry. 
And then he says, God, I want you to think about these things I'm anxious about while I sleep because I need sleep and you don't. And he's obviously being a little bit cheeky with his language there, but I think it's a beautiful practice, right? I think that's a practical way to do what Peter says, which is to cast all our anxieties and our cares upon God. And it demonstrates exactly what Paul is saying in this passage, that prayer is a much healthier alternative to anxiety and panic over things that we have no ability to control. But there's one more very important word that Paul mentions in verse 6, and we absolutely cannot miss it if we want to hear what he's saying in this passage. It's the word thanksgiving. Paul says, make your request to God, quote, with thanksgiving. Chances are there are a lot of things that you and I could pray about right now. Lots of things we need help with, comfort about, assistance from God on, but knowing all of that, And being aware of all of that, let me just caution you with one very important thing. Do not let requests eat up all of your prayers. Don't let requests eat up all of your prayers. Don't let your prayers become only a laundry list of requests and wishes from God. Make a conscious effort to include prayers of thanks as well. So for a lot of us, when we pray, we open up with sort of the standard fare, especially if we've been around church or been around Christianity long, we say things like, God, thank you for this day, thank you for your grace, thank you for your mercy, thank you for hearing us when we pray. That's generally what our prayers sound like when we open up, and I get that sometimes those things can feel so routine that they almost start to feel empty. And indeed, sometimes they can become empty. But I do want you to see in this passage that there is a deeply biblical reason that we pray that way. There's a deeply biblical reason that we always thank God for things as we pray. It's because when you worship the God of the scriptures, there is always something to be thankful for. There's always something worth celebrating. There's always something to be glad about, to rejoice in. And praying that way, Paul says, is a weapon aimed directly at our anxiety and our panic. Anxiety tells us, teaches us to believe that there are always things we need that we don't have. And that may be true. But thankfulness reminds us of the things we do have. So listen, take all of your requests to God. Take your complaints to God. We've talked about that before here on Sundays. Don't be afraid to take all of your fears and all of your anxieties and everything going on in your mind straight to God. He's not scared of any of that. He can accept all of it. And don't forget Thanksgiving. Does that make sense? And maybe you hear that and go, okay, but that's the thing. I I don't feel like I have anything to be thankful for in my life right now. Everything is pretty bad right now. I don't have anything that I can actually thank God for. Well, start with the fact that you have breath in your lungs and work your way out from there. God, God, thank you today is another day to live and breathe. Thank you for the job that I have, even if I hate it a lot of the time. Thank you for the friends that I have, even if they are very annoying to me right now in this moment. Thank you for a roof over my head and food in my pantry. Thank you for money in my bank account. I know we've got college students in here. Thank you for the little amount of money that is in my bank account right now. Thank you for the people in my life group that care about me, even if they do it imperfectly. 
Thank you that even when I feel like everything in my life is frustrating and disappointing, that God, you are big enough and capable enough to use even those disappointments and frustrations for my good and your glory. You worship the God of the scriptures, there is always something to be thankful for. If you are still breathing, there are things to be thankful for. You just have to be willing to stop long enough to take notice of them. So include those things when you pray. With your anxieties, with your fears, with your frustrations, include gratefulness. So we offer everything, Paul says, in prayer and petition to God with thanksgiving. Second, the second thing Paul gives us is that we are told to think differently. Think differently. Look with me at verse 8 in the passage. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, quote, think about such things. Here's what I think Paul knows about human nature. He knows that often we cannot prevent anxious thoughts from entering our minds. We can't do that. He also knows that we usually can't control our emotional response to those anxious thoughts when they enter our minds. But there is one thing we can do, and that's that we can choose to fill our minds regularly with more productive things than that. Quote, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Paul says, think about those things. We cannot stop panic from entering our minds, but we can crowd it out over time by filling our minds with something better. So can I just ask for us this morning, what are we regularly filling our minds with? And I get that I'm about to sound like a broken record after the past couple teachings that I've given, but that's fine because I think it bears repeating. If you are spending hours upon hours upon hours consuming media and social media every day, you are asking to live in a constant state of anxiety. I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm not saying it's sinful. It might be, I'm just saying it's not helpful in your fight against anxiety. Most of those channels and outlets and social media channels thrive on giving you one thing after another to be anxious about and fearful of, to giving you people to be anxious about and fearful of. They actually have a vested financial interest in you tuning in constantly, thinking that you are escaping from your anxiety, only to be encouraged to be infinitely more anxious as a result. So do not be surprised, follower of Jesus, when you, after giving tons of your time and attention to those things, end up feeling very anxious a lot of the time. That's actually what those things are designed to create in you. But to the same effect, do not be surprised that if you choose to fill your minds regularly with noble, true, trustworthy, praiseworthy things, it brings peace to your mind and heart as a result. So just as one example, what would it look like to fill our minds regularly with the truths from Scripture? What would that look like? You don't even have to be good at reading or understanding Scripture to do this. I'm saying find a singular verse or idea from the Scriptures that is helpful to you and just spend the day turning it over and over again in your mind. 
meditating on it. And maybe you're like, I don't know how to meditate on scripture. Okay, find a worship song with that idea in it. Learn the words to that song and what they mean and just sing that song to yourself over and over again throughout the day and think about what those words mean. If you can do that, surprise, you just learned how to meditate on scripture. It's that simple. I'm saying, what are we filling our minds with and what are those things leading us towards? I think that's the point Paul is making in this passage. That is one example of how to fill your mind, how to think about praiseworthy things. There are plenty of other ways out there. We don't have time for all those. We've got to move on to the next one. But I would bet that the more we choose to fill our minds with worthwhile things, over time, the less room we would have in our minds and hearts for anxiety to take root and intensify. So how might we learn to think differently? Third, in the passage, Paul says to practice persistently. Practice persistently. So I think this one actually gives us some really helpful clarity on the first two things that we mentioned. So look with me at the first half of verse 9. Paul says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. The word that Paul uses there for practice refers to something that is done as a routine or as a habit. The idea is that everything that we've mentioned this morning, and in fact, everything that the Philippians have learned from Paul in general, must be put into regular, persistent practice for it to be effective. It must be implemented on a recurring basis. In other words, Paul is not saying, he's not trying to imply that if you cast your anxieties on God one time, it's going to instantly fix a propensity in you towards panic. He's not trying to say that if you fill your mind with praiseworthy things today, you are going to magically be done with anxiety tomorrow. In general, that is not how the spiritual life works. It actually has to be implemented into your life and your mind and your heart on a regular basis over a longer period of time. What Paul says here in verse 9 when he says put it into practice, it actually could be translated in the original language, put it into exercise. I know I just made some of you like it a lot less when I used it that way but it actually could be translated, put it into exercise. That's the idea that Paul is trying to communicate here. So borrowing from that imagery, I want you to imagine a hypothetical situation with me. I want you to imagine that you are a physical trainer, like that's your job, it's what you do for a living. And I want you to imagine that you take on a new client one day who has not worked out in a very, very long time, maybe ever. And let's say you get together with them for your initial meeting, set up, all of that, and you give them a list of exercises for them to do, you show them how to do the exercises, all of that, and you tell them that if they do those exercises, they will get stronger, they will lose weight, and over time, they will become a healthier person as a result. You tell them all of that, you send them on their way. And then you get a phone call from this very client early the next morning. And this client is mad at you, like big mad at you. 
They call you, they use all types of choice words to describe you and your profession and your conversation that you had with them. They tell you that you are in fact a terrible trainer because they did all of the exercises that you gave them to do yesterday just as you told them to do the exercises, but according to them, they don't feel any stronger, they haven't lost any weight, and they don't feel any healthier than they did the day before when they talked to you. They accuse you of lying to them and not knowing what you're doing. Okay, in that situation, what would your response be to that client? If you're a patient understanding type of person, it would probably be to kindly explain to them that you didn't mean those things would occur in their life after they exercised one time. In fact, you would explain to them that the idea behind exercise is that you actually do the same types of things over and over and over again, and over time, you start to see results from it. That's how the process works. Okay, let me ask you a question with that knowledge. Why do we think it is any different from that with our spiritual life? With spiritual practices, with spiritual exercises, with things like taking our anxieties to God in order to grow in peace as a result. Sometimes after I teach on something like this, about how we're called to pray instead of being anxious or embody peace instead of panic, people will respond by saying something like, yeah, I tried that, it didn't work. And if I ask them some questions about what they mean by I tried it, here's what I typically find out. Normally what they mean is that they tried it a few times or for a short season and they didn't immediately feel more peaceful. Or they didn't feel peaceful, peaceful in the ways that they thought they would. But you see, generally, that's not the way that it works. Generally, it's not that you pray one, two, three times and you immediately become a more peaceful person. Rather, how it generally works is that as you put into practice the things that God instructs us to do, as you do that over time, you grow in peace. I heard someone say sometime that if you, if you want the life of Jesus, if you want the life that Jesus offers, you have to be willing to take on the lifestyle of Jesus. And the lifestyle of Jesus was to regularly interact with the Father over time. God is not generally in the business of giving immediate solutions because sometimes when we have immediate solutions, we miss him in the process. So that leads us to the final thing. Final thing Paul says, which is, I think, a little bit less of an instruction like the other three and a little bit more of a realization that we need to have. Here's how I'd put it. We need to realize that peace is a person. Peace is a person. Look with me at the second half of verse 9 in the passage. Quote, and the God of peace will be with you. So here's something we absolutely must grasp about achieving lasting peace as a follower of Jesus. Before peace is something that you obtain from God, peace is something that God is. The Psalms say that he is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our ever-present help in times of trouble. It said it right there in verse 9, the God of peace who is with you. It said it earlier in verse 5 of the passage, the Lord is near, it said. It says it in verse 7, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace is a person, and his name is Jesus. 
This, to me, helps explain why peace is not something we just obtain from God by way of a magic pill the moment that we ask him for it. Because you see, God is not content to give us one thing we need from him. He desires to give us his entire self. A life of peace is actually just a byproduct of living life alongside Jesus. God cannot give us peace apart from him because he is peace. Ephesians 2 actually says it that plainly. Speaking of Jesus, it says, quote, he himself is our peace. So when we spend time in the presence of God through Jesus, via things like persistent prayer and casting our cares on God, what we are doing in those moments is that we are tangibly reminding ourselves of the nearness of God. And when we live actively conscious of the nearness of God, peace will naturally come and reside in us as well over time. So if we want to become a community of peace in an age of panic, we will need to become people who are filled with the presence of God through Jesus. The Lord is near. The God of peace is with us, Paul says, and he will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is where peace comes from. It comes from a person who embodies its very nature. I think all of this is what enables Jesus to say to his disciples once in the Gospel of John, right before the disciples go through some pretty horrible, devastating sorts of things, Jesus says this directly to them. He says, I have told you these things so that in me, Jesus, so that in Jesus you may have peace. In this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. That's a guarantee from Jesus, by the way. That's a promise. In this world, you will have trouble, he says, but take heart, I, Jesus, have overcome the world. You and I cannot stop the world from having trouble in it. Hopefully most of us have learned that by now. Cannot stop the world from having trouble in it. That is not an ability that we possess in the least. Difficulty is inevitable in our world. Suffering is inevitable in our world. Brokenness, sin, frustration, hurt, all of those things are inevitable in the world that we occupy. The promise that Jesus leaves us in the scriptures is not that we can avoid or dodge any of those things. The promise he leaves us is in knowing the one who has overcome all of it, who has been through all of those things and has come out the other side victorious and the one who can grant you and I the ability to do the same when we are willing to walk in the way of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. So each Sunday as a community, we go to the tables around this room and we partake of the bread and the cup. And all of that is just a tangible way to remind ourselves of the moment that God sent Jesus to overcome the world the moment that he made his peace available to us once and for all through the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. The cross was where Jesus endured the brunt force of brokenness in our world so that you and I as his people could experience lasting peace in the midst of it.
So if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, you're invited to head to the tables together with us in the coming moments as we respond to that reality. Let's pray.